Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions, Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Research and Strategy, and Sophie Traherne from our Government Relations Department, discuss the Conservative leadership election, conflict between governors of the Bank of England, geopolitical tensions in the Middle East, and cryptocurrencies. Hello and welcome to Word on the Street. Well, this week as we pull on our swimming trunks of truth and take our weekly dip into the murky investment waters beneath the stories that have been dominating the headlines. My name's Toby Cross, Head of Client Investment Solutions here at Barclays, and I'm joined today to splash around in the shallows of the news with our Head of Research and Strategy, John Paul Yeagers, and most importantly, a special guest, Sophie Traherne, from our Government Relations Department. Now, Sophie, we have to start with you. The topic that's dominating the news everywhere in the UK is the Tory leadership election. We're now down to the final two after last night. Perhaps you could remind us who the current candidates are, what they stand for and who is voting for them. Um, Yes, so as you just said, the party has completed the first stage of the leadership process where Conservative MPs uh, vote in private ballots on leadership candidates until there are two. And after the final round of voting yesterday, the two are Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, and they will now go out to a ballot of Conservative Party members, which is reported to be around 160,000 members. Um, So just as a reminder, we started off with 10 in the first MP ballot, and after five rounds, they whittled them down to Johnson, who did well in every single ballot and ended up on 160 MP votes. And Hunt, who had a much tougher time and only just beat Michael Gove in the final round, securing 77 votes to Gove's 75. And needless to say, as you'll have seen in the news, Boris is very much seen as the front runner. He did well with Conservative MP ballots, and there is a bit of a sense that most in Westminster now see Boris Uh, winning this contest as a bit of a foregone conclusion. Um, He's a really popular figure amongst the membership. A recent poll by the Conservative website Conservative Home which asks who should be the next leader of the Conservative Party after Theresa May and Boris is currently on 62% with his main rivals in the teens. So this is just one poll but it does reflect the direction of travel over recent months. His big play to MPs and the membership is that he is the only one that can beat Jeremy Corbyn and with the prospect of an early general election uh, this year possibly this is very much front and centre of minds and Jeremy Hunt did admit yet last night he is the underdog but he also pointed out quite rightly that in politics sometimes surprises happen and this is very true for the Conservative leadership elections where it isn't always the front runner that wins. Look at David Cameron in 2005, John Major in 1990, Margaret Thatcher in 1975, all relative outsiders who beat the favourite and there is still a fair bit of the contest yet to come. So you touched on a really important point there that even though the news agencies have made this sound look and feel a bit like a general election. Of course, the general public doesn't get to vote. This is a relatively narrow strata of the population, quite a homogenous strata of the population. Do you think that they're likely to be looking at self-interest or are they representing the views of their constituents? Well, I mean, this next stage is is interesting because we have now a whole month of uh, uh, what is basically... uh, the two candidates 
trying to woo the 160,000 Conservative Party membership. Um, this kicks off with uh, on the 22nd of June in Birmingham with 16 regional hustings around the country. So this is very much an opportunity for members to go and question the two candidates. Um, these will be live streamed as well by the Conservative Party. Um, and these will be really important moments for both candidates. And that's why I say there's still a long way to go in this process. There's still uh, a chance for uh, a surprise to happen. And I think what is interesting about this contest compared to, say, 2016, is um, in 2016 the Tory leadership race saw the right of the party completely sort of divide and implode when the centre and left coalesced around Theresa May and won through. But this time around, the opposite has happened. The right has united behind Boris, uh, wooing the membership, and the centre left has divided, leaving them scattered. So when you had Hancock, Javid, Stuart, Gove, all of them ate into each other's votes, leaving no one with real momentum. So there wasn't really a personality that the membership could get behind. Um, and that's why Boris Johnson has been doing so well and polling so well amongst the members. Now, is this a personality contest or is it a policy contest? Is there a real difference between what either of those individuals will offer? Because that has a big impact on my next question for JP. Yeah, I mean, in terms of in terms of Brexit is very much front and centre of minds. Um, both candidates have talked about going back to Brussels and some sort of renegotiation. Jeremy Hunt said at his campaign launch that he'd be prepared to leave without a deal if there was a straight choice between no deal and no Brexit. But he said he would do so with a heavy heart, basically highlighting the risk to business in the union. Whereas Boris has been much more punchy on this issue and said that the UK will be leaving the EU, deal or no deal, on the 31st of October, very much playing up to the membership view, which is traditionally Eurosceptic. Um, he has insisted that the survival of the Tory party depends on us leaving uh, the, the EU by October 31st. Um, and of course, the timing is really tight on all this for any possible renegotiation or discussion with Brussels. If the new prime minister is expected, uh, is, is elected on July 22nd, they will have just over 100 days before we leave, we're due to leave the EU. So timing is really tight. Yeah, I remember the advice that was given was use the time wisely, wasn't yeah. it, by the head of the EU. Now, the JP, over to you. So <clears throat> interestingly, it's not just the contradictions between the Tory leadership in that debate. We've also now, uncharacteristically, had a bit of conflict between governors of the Bank of England. And I'm talking most specifically about Mark Carney, who is the current governor of the Bank of England, and his predecessor, Lord King. Now, you and, and Will Hobbs have said on a number of occasions that this is a very, very difficult uh, element to unpick the economy what brexit means for the economy what the future of the economic system will be like with regard to things like tariffs and trade deals etc um, mark carney has come under criticism from some quarters for being too political in his view he has a view that was expressed at his mansion house speech that he feels that a hard Brexit would not be the right way to go ahead, that the trade deals need to be in place. Lord King, however, has a different view. What does that mean for the economy? And do we have any view on uh, on those contrasting thoughts? I, th I think what, what you just mentioned, Art, is a perfect example on how difficult the task is. If Even if those experts can't agree on what the consequences will be for the economy and, and how it will impact the economy on those different areas, then investors can't be expected to know that either. It's, it, it, it's a very complex task, and even the experts don't know at this stage. Speaking of another complex task, 
We'll get back to geopolitics. We've had huge strain in the Middle East. Last night, we got to the brink of US military action against Iran that was called off. This is the so-called tanker wars issue. I wonder if you can give us a summary of, of what's been going on and what investors might consider um, if, if they're taking that piece of news into account when making decisions. Yeah, that's a very good point. So frictions flared up last week after an attack on two oil tankers outside the Gulf. The US was quite quick to blame Iran and send some military reinforcements. On Monday, Iran announced it will breach the nuclear accord. And now we've also seen headlines that Iran has shot down one uh, a US drone, which the US confirms. So you clearly see that tensions are rising uh, as a result of US tightening sanctions in early May. Uh, but for investors, it's very important to realize that it's very hard to use geopolitics in investment decisions. There is absolutely no edge we have here. It's important, but probably only from an angle where you can monitor developments instead of using it really in investment decisions. So we go back to that age-old view of there are easier ways to make money than trying to speculate on geopolitical outcomes. Yes, as a fundamental investor, we can make our minds up on macro developments, where inflation is going, where the economy is heading, how corporate profits are evolving. But if you then make an assessment on geopolitics, it becomes pure speculation, I should point out. Now, what's interesting for me is the fact that we had the financial crisis in 2008, which was a broad mirror of what happened in 1929, but the velocity of recovery was much, much shorter. One of the things that I've been talking to people about this week with regard to the tank awards is the fact that it seems, it feels like the Gulf War One, Gulf War Two where there was a real emphasis on the strategic reliance on other countries for oil, seems to have spurred some investment. And now the US in particular no longer has anywhere near the same strategic requirement on foreign producers that it had in the past. So really, it's a way of markets working, if you will. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. So in, in previous past, we've also seen always seen that oil is a barometer of geopolitical tensions. So if you get geopolitical events, that oil tends to spike. Uh, the US has gone to a shale gas revolution where they now can start producing oil uh, from, from fracking uh, a shale gas. At the moment, we see that the US is roughly 15% of global crude production. So that's still relatively small. But from 2020 onwards, they can start exporting those uh, those uh, oil productions and that in a way actually means that there is more flexibility in the supply of oil so if you get tensions it's much harder to see oil spike much more aggressively and that makes it as a user barometer much harder if you don't know the context of the supply and the demand so essentially that's diversification in action if there are more sources to get your return from in this case your oil from then you're not as reliant on one individual area or region producing it now one of the things that was discussed in last week's podcast was cryptocurrency it was touched on briefly i remember will hobbs was talking about the huge swings in volatility around it it was very interesting to me then that this week news came out that facebook were looking at launching a cryptocurrency not the face coin as people have been dubbing it but i think they're calling it libra um i think that we have been very clear that these cryptocurrencies should not be used for investment purposes that people will speculate on them but the huge swings in volatility relative to the returns that you can gain don't necessarily mean that they are a good risk adjusted 
return for long-term investors. But the societal benefits, I think, for things like cryptocurrencies are often overlooked. That when we look at them in the developed economies, we're looking at them for how do we get money in, how do we get money out, can we make any money on them? They actually do have a very important societal function for the unbanked billion, which I, I, I see is being dubbed in, in the media. These people who don't have access to traditional bank accounts, it can be a unit and a medium of exchange for, for those people who don't have access to the traditional system. That's another interesting thing that perhaps we will touch on in the future. But um, Sophie, do you think you'll be uh, owning any face coins anytime soon? <laughs> I'll have to take a steer from you guys. <laughs> ah, well, I wouldn't do that because we don't give investment advice on this podcast. The other thing to keep in mind, and the BBC have been uh, have run some really excellent pieces on this, is um, uh, summarising some output from the Financial Conduct Authority. Um, as people will know, uh, defined benefit pension schemes can now be commuted. Um, basically, the FCA has come out and said that as like as not, the defined benefit scheme is probably going to be more beneficial to uh, the holders than an alternative. And that all advisors should start from a point of assuming that. That's a really important point because some of the, uh, some of the things that they found with their investigations were a little unnerving. So the point to take away from that is that if you are looking at pensions, you are looking to make any changes, you have the opportunity, then it's a really good idea to seek advice on that. Well, that's the word on the street this week. Thank you very much to my guest, John Paul Yeagers from uh, Investment Strategy and Sophie Traherne. It's always nice to hear from you, particularly as politics is dominating the agenda. Hopefully we will be able to snag you again next week to give us an update and a running commentary. Thank you very much and we look forward to catching up with you next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.